through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. I've spent the last few weeks putting together a special, kid-friendly version of my episodes on everyday life in ancient Egypt for my niece's 10th birthday. I'm going to put it up on my Patreon page for everyone to enjoy, whether you're a patron of the show or not. That said, I'm not quite ready to unveil my last batch of episodes about life for the ladies in the ancient world. Luckily, we have a sponsor this week who's made it possible to pull a special bonus out of the Patreon vault. That sponsor is Hank Green, the number one New York Times bestselling author of An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. He's also the CEO of Complexly, a production company that creates great educational content, including Crash Course and SciShow. I'll introduce you to his latest book later on. Now, let's time travel back and meet one of Cleopatra's most formidable, least talked about ancestors. One of the women who shaped who she became. Grab your diadem, your Isis gear, and a healthy dose of ambition. Let's go traveling. Cleopatra maneuvered her way through Egyptian, Greek, and Roman politics, defying the odds to keep the Ptolemaic dynasty and Egypt's independence going. But what of all the Cleopatras who came before her? In delving into Cleo's life, I found a host of interesting women in the family that shaped her, but only one amongst them truly set the tone for her dynasty, creating a mold that had royal Ptolemaic women ruling not from behind their husbands, but beside them, and sometimes in front of them. That woman is Arsinoe too. Let's dive into the wild and crazy ride that was her life. Arsinoe, who historians call Arsinoe II to differentiate her from the ladies of the same name who come before and after, is born sometime around 316 BCE. We don't know much about her early life. In fact, she barely shows up at all until she marries someone. Isn't it always the way? As Elizabeth Carney so deftly puts it in her book about our subject, which is where most of this episode's research came from, looking at Arsinoe's life is a bit like trying to meet someone at a big party, but somehow always missing them. In a sense, Arsinoe is always in the other room. But we do know something about her parents, who irrevocably shaped the person she'll become. Her father is Ptolemy I Soter, yes, the original Ptolemy we talked about in our first Cleo episode, who founds the dynasty that bears his name. Arsinoe is one of Ptolemaic Egypt's very first first daughters, but from the beginning, her place in its history is far from assured. To understand Arsinoe's story, we have to ground ourselves in time. Remember where we left off in our episode about Olympias, mother of Alexander the Great? I'll remind you, because that's pretty much exactly where our story opens. As we discussed when talking about Cleo, Papa Ptolemy grew up in and around Alexander the Great's court in Macedonia as one of his royal bros. But when Alex dies in 323, he doesn't exactly leave a clear line of succession. When asked on his deathbed who the title should go to, he just says, To the best. I almost think Olympias' son looked forward to the absolute shitshow this would cause. Inevitably, with the throne vacant on his massive empire, the scene starts to look very much like the opening minutes of a coronavirus-era fight over the last pack of toilet paper. 
In terms of who should rule Macedonia, there are two teams. One is Team Philip Aridaeus, that's Alexander's dim-witted half-brother, and Team Alexander's unborn baby, who is still inside his wife Roxana's womb. The generals on each side clash, but one of them, a guy named Perdiccas, emerges victorious, at least for a while. He puts Philip Aridaeus on the throne, makes himself his top commander, then assists as the royal bros, more formally known to history as his successors, carve up the rest of the empire and pass it out like pieces of sweet raspberry pie. They will spend the next several decades trying to steal those pie pieces back from each other. The problem is that in the beginning, they're technically ruling as satraps, kind of like governors, not kings in their own right. That's one of the reasons Ptolemy steals Alexander's body and brings it back to Alexandria with him. None of Alexander's bros can claim their right to rule these new lands as blood descendants of Alex. They have to claim it on the back of being big, impressive war heroes. You could say that Ptolemy is very much a self-made man, but with Alex's body, he can more clearly link himself to the great man and stake his claim for the dynasty he's about to create in Egypt. But his bold moves also help kick off the First War of the Diaci, otherwise known as the Wars of the Successors. These go on for decades. Friends betray each other, kings die and rise, and it's all just a super confusing bloody cluster. But they are worth mentioning here for two reasons. First, because they continue to rage throughout Ursinoe's lifetime and affect her in a massive way. Two, because in these troubled years, Alex's royal bros find they have two tried and true ways of sorting out their many disagreements. One is to wage war against each other, which is messy and expensive and the other is to marry each other's daughters. These royal women may not have a lot of power, but they are extensions of their families, and in some ways, that makes them quite powerful indeed. For all his faults, Arsinoe's dad, Ptolemy Soter, is quite serious about making Egypt great again. When not off-warring, he is setting the budding city of Alexandria up for greatness, moving Egypt's capital from down south, where it's been for a very, very long time. He takes what Alexander started and builds the first walls and sanctuaries. He may even be the one who starts constructing the Pharos, or Lighthouse, which will become one of the great wonders of the ancient world. He splashes out a lot of money to turn his family into major patrons of art and culture, wanting nothing less than to turn Alexandria into the Hellenic cultural capital of the world. At first glance, the Ptolemies seem overwhelmingly like the Egyptian pharaonic dynasties of old. They associate themselves with gods and goddesses, live in grand palaces, they even marry their sisters. Except they don't, actually. At least, not yet. Look closer and it's clear to see that the Ptolemies fit the mold of Macedonian Greece. They speak Greek, hold up Greece's art, education, and traditions. And, just like in Olympias' day, their kings take multiple wives. When we think of ancient Egypt, we think of pharaonic families with giant royal harems. That isn't what's happening here. Instead, Ptolemy follows the Macedonian tradition of taking several wives and having children with all of them. It's always good to have backups. Their 
There's a Greek woman named Thais, a hetera who supposedly traveled with Alexander. It's rumored that she's the one who convinced him, during a night of drunken debauchery, to light the Persian city of Persepolis on fire. Oh my. She has several of Ptolemy's children. Then there's Artakama. Ptolemy picks her up at the Susa weddings. Remember those? Alex took over Susa in Persia in 324, where he lined up all of his best bros across from some local ladies, like they were about to do some line dancing, and was like, You get a hot wife, and you get a hot wife, and me, I get two. A mass-forced wedding. That's fine. Ptolemy Soter might even take an Egyptian wife from the last ruling dynasty, but we aren't 100% sure about that. So, suffice it to say, Ptolemy's drowning in lady companions. But if there's one queen bee in Ptolemy's court, it's got to be Eurydice. She's the daughter of Antipater, the big dog over in Macedonia, who all the royal bros want to get in political bed with, and the sister of Cassander, that royal bro who kills Olympias. Rude! She bears Ptolemy at least four children, two of which are sons. But she isn't Arsinoe's mother. That honor falls to a fine lady named Berenice. When Eurydice comes over to Alexandria to marry Ptolemy, Berenice comes with her as one of her ladies-in-waiting, and ends up in a kind of Jane Seymour, Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII situation. She arrives, looking fly as she flutters about her lady queen, catches the randy Ptolemy's eye, and works that attraction to her advantage. There's no real political edge for Ptolemy in marrying Berenice, so we have to imagine they marry for love. Or, you know, something like that. Out of that love comes several children, Arsinoe amongst them. Ptolemy be flush with potential heirs. And of course, this creates the same rivalries we saw in Olympias's court. Because there is no chief wife, no defined pecking order, and no clear line of succession, wives are pitted against each other from day one, their sons and daughters becoming chess pieces in the game of who has power. For most of Arsinoe's childhood, her half-brothers, the sons of Eurydice, are clearly in favor with her father. So, she surely grows up knowing that dad's other family matters to him more than she does, always standing in their shadow. It's hard to know how she feels about this, but I can't imagine it leaves her feeling warm and tingly. We don't know if Berenice's kids and Eurydice's grow up hating each other, like an extremely poisonous Brady Bunch, but we can assume they see each other as rivals, at the very least. Who will win the battle for their father's ultimate favor and end up on the throne, or in exile? We know nothing about her childhood. Really, zero. We do know that Arsinoe's brothers get fancy Greek tutors, and given the local attitude about women and learning and her dad's clear fondness for reading, it's likely she benefits from some of that scholarly learning herself. Like our Cleopatra, it's likely she grows up in luxury, but also in anxiety. Her position in Ptolemy's court is always tenuous, and she knows her fate lies in hands other than her own. For much of her childhood, it looks like a guy named Ptolemy Saronis, Ptolemy's son with Eurydice, is going to be the next in line. But somewhere along the way, Berenice's star starts rising. She increasingly gets pride of place over Eurydice, and that means Arsinoe and her brothers get it too. Suddenly, out of semi-obscurity, her family's power seems assured. So what now? It's wedding time. Remember how we said that marrying each other's daughters was a powerful way of tying these often warring royal bros together? 
Ptolemy Soter takes one look at his daughter, Arsinoe, and says, Shall we gift you to one of my buddies, darling? You know what? I think we shall. And so, around the turn of the third century, Arsinoe marries her special Prince Charming. Just kidding. She marries Lysimachus, the king of Thrace, which is split between modern-day Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey. She's probably about 16, and he's, uh, about 60. An age gap is common in this time period, of course, but this one's big enough to fit an entire pyramid through. We don't know much about Lysimachus as a man. He has a bit of a rep for being brave, or maybe reckless, and strong, or maybe ruthless. So, probably about on par with the rest of Alex's bros. During his time with Alexander, he fought and was wounded, was given a wife at Susa, and apparently participated with gusto in several lion hunts, as you do. When she arrives at Lysimachia, the capital of Thrace, to marry him, how does she feel? Excited? Nervous? Grossed out to be marrying someone old enough to be her grandpa? We have no way to know, but there's no denying that this is a powerful position to be marrying into. There will be other wives to contend with, but this is a powerful country, and one where, as one of the leading lights at court, she can potentially influence a lot. It's worth noting here that, back in 306, when all of Alex's bros shucked off that satrap life and took on royal titles, they also took up a new word for royal women, Basilissa. They also gave their ladies shiny diadems to show everyone who saw them their exact royal place. Rock those jewels, girl! While this title doesn't mean they can actually rule in their own right, it cements their importance in the royal family. As symbols, icons, influencers, their lives Lives and images are suddenly much more public, and so they are pawns, but also players. We know extremely little in detail about what life is like at Lysimachia for Arsinoe, besides the fact that she bears her hubby three sons. Ptolemy in 298, Lysimachus in 296, and Philip around 293. He had other older sons with other wives, so she probably couldn't expect for them to inherit, but hey, you never know. She probably spends these years keeping her nose clean, traveling with the Thracian court, raising her sons, and fighting for their interests. We do know that she enjoyed a good splash of prestige and attention. Strabo and others tell us that her hubby refounds the city of Ephesus and names it Arsinoea after his lovely lady. There are some coins that we think have her face on them, and a village that put up an inscription praising their Basilissa Arsinoe, speaking to how publicly important her role is. She's a queen, a patron, and maybe even a priestess. Sounds like life really ain't all that bad. Does she have any real power, or is her name being used in these instances to show the might of Egypt's support in Thrace and the strength of Lysimachus's family? It's hard to say. On this time in her life, our gal is silent. But there's some serious blood in the water. Lysimachus and Ptolemy Soter are arranging another marriage, this time between Lysimachus's son with another woman and his chosen heir, Agathocles, and Lysandra, Ptolemy's daughter with Eurydice. So, one of the half-siblings Arsinoe probably grew up hating. Now these two women are competing once again, and that's gotta be pretty stressful. Meanwhile, another one of Eurydice's sons is getting ready to wreak all sorts of havoc. In 285, Papa Ptolemy finally chose his successor and co-king. It's Arsinoe's brother, Ptolemy, not her expected half-brother, Ptolemy Seranus. This has got to come as a surprise in Ptolemy's court, particularly to Seranus. 
He grew up expecting to take up the position. I mean, his mom was the favorite wife, and he was the favorite son. It's a no-brainer. But to his horror, he found himself falling from his lofty pedestal. Like a jilted lover, Saranis marched out of Alexandria. Perhaps he's angry about being shunned by his dad, or perhaps dad kicks him on out of Egypt. Either way, no doubt he leaves with a grudge and a major chip on his shoulder, and someone is going to have to pay for it. And so, like a shark in that bloody water, he appears sniffing around at Lysimachus's court. We don't know why, but it's got to make Arsinoe anxious. Meanwhile, all the royal, now old bros are choosing sons to be their co-rulers and successors, but not Lysimachus. He's apparently in no rush, and that's making everybody edgy. Especially Arsinoe, whose oldest son is now 15 and coming very close to adulthood. What if her aging husband bites the dust and that oldest son, Agathocles, gets the power? What will happen to her and her boys? With several sons hungry for power and nothing to do, we've got a potential succession battle on our hands. And that's when things get really messy. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hank Green. His first book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, was released in 2018. The story of a young woman thrown into and then growing her fame as the world suddenly has to deal with massive changes in the form of contagious dreams and mysterious 10-foot-tall robots that have appeared in every major city. The Associated Press said it was a thrilling journey that takes a hard look at the power of fame and our willingness to separate a person from the brand. Book Reported said it was, perhaps as honest a look as we will ever get into the phenomenon of cyberfame. And the San Francisco Chronicle said, Sparkling with mystery, humor, and the uncanny, this is a fun read, but beneath its effervescent tone, more complex themes are at play. Well, now that novel is out in paperback or at your library, and also for cheap in audio form. And the sequel and conclusion of the story, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, is out to sparkling reviews. Hank wanted his publisher to sponsor a ton of small podcasts, but they said that was too weird. So instead, Hank took 5% of his advance from the book and did it himself. Thanks, Hank. Library Journal's start review said, Throughout this adventurous, witty, and compelling novel, Green delivers sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. The book came out July 7th in physical, audio, and ebook form wherever books are sold. Or you can just go to hankgreen.com and that will get you where you need to go. Suddenly, and rather mysteriously, Agathocles dies. Some sources claim that Arsinoe is the one behind it. She convinces her husband to have him poisoned. Some say she even does the deed herself, because we do so love accusing women of tipping toxins into men's dinners. Some other sources take it a step further and say that Arsinoe tries to seduce Agathocles, then has him killed because he rejects her. Yeah. Okay. But Strabo says that it's Lysimachus himself that has his son killed because he catches him plotting against his father. Does he ask Arsinoe and her oldest son to do this and then pretend not to notice? Or does he do the deed himself? And why? We don't have the answers, but it lets everyone know that the court in Thrace isn't exactly cohesive, and a fractured court is an easy one to break. 
The plot thickens from there. First, the freckly widowed Lysandra flees with her kids to Seleucus, another royal bro. His empire is sandwiched between Ptolemy's and Lysimachus's, and it is huge. We're talking Babylonia and most of the East. Lysandra isn't the only one who jumps off of Team Lysimachus after the death of his son. Apparently, Agathocles had plenty of people in his corner. So when Lysandra begs Seleucus to go to war with Lysimachus, he's like, Yeah, girl. I got you." He invades, taking some of Lysimachus's territory before he can even get his troops together. At last, these two old war dogs meet at Corupedium in 281, and that is where Arsinoe's husband dies. When Arsinoe gets the news, she's in Ephesus, aka Arsinoea. We can only imagine her horror at his death and the sudden change in her fortunes, but she's got more immediate problems. The city erupts into chaos, with pro-Seleucid forces tearing down the walls and busting storefronts. One story has it that in order to escape, Arsinoe swaps clothes with one of her maids and puts her in a royal litter, sending her off as an Arsinoe doppelganger, while she, bedraggled, runs through the streets for her life. Her maid is stabbed to death, and Arsinoe gets away. A brutal ruse, but efficient. The greedy Seleucus claims victory over Lysimachus's lands. Months later, he crosses the Hellespont to claim them, and guess who's right there, riding right alongside him? Ptolemy Saronis, the snakiest of snakes. Things take a sudden turn, though, when they get to Thrace, where Saronis stabs Seleucus in the back, quite literally. This is the moment where he picks up the name Saronis, which means Thunderbolt. Can't you just picture him dropping that knife with a resounding BOOM? He sees an opportunity to be the King of Thrace, and he takes it, but it probably isn't a crime of the moment. Given how quickly he rounds up a bunch of guards, grabs himself a horse, slaps on a diadem, and wins over Seleucus's troops, suggests planning and a whole lot of secret support. He manages to make peace with Seleucus's sons and Arsinoe's brother, Ptolemy II, somehow, then turns to the big internal threat before him, Lysimachus's remaining sons and his wife. We don't know exactly what Arsinoe's been doing since she ran away from Arsinoea in rags, but we have good reason to believe that she and her sons have been commanding troops and fortifying cities all their own. She clearly controls some of Macedonia, and is fighting to keep it so that her sons can someday rule. She still has some friends, lands, and a decent amount of money, but their position is, at best, very shaky. She's currently holed up in the city of Cassandria, probably doing a whole lot of pacing, trying to figure out her next move. So what's Zeranus to do? Kill her and her sons? No, no, he decides. He's gonna take that romantic route instead. He saunters on over to Cassandria, which Arsinoe has had surrounded, either by an army or some mercenaries she's hired, and is like, Hey, sugar, I think that maybe you and I got off on the wrong foot, you know? Why don't we put the past behind us and get hitched, honey? And get this, she actually does it. What? Let's think this through. 
Obviously, Saranus has plenty to gain by the marriage. By allying himself with Arsinoe, he gets Egypt's support, and he links himself to Lysimachus's legacy, legitimizing his right to rule. Finally, a kingdom of his very own. No matter that his wife would be his half-sister, that's fine. But Arsinoe? In this time period, it's common for widowed women to go back to their birth family. Egypt's right there, girl. Get your ass back home. But she doesn't want to do that, apparently, because she wants to be queen again. And more to the point, she wants her sons to have their due. So as part of their negotiations, she makes Aranus agree to certain conditions. He won't take any other wives, and thus won't have any other children to contend with. And her sons with Lysimachus will be the next in line for the kingship. And he's like, Sure, baby. I'll even swear it in front of the gods and a witness of your choosing. Anything for you, boo. How does she know he doesn't have his fingers crossed behind his back as he whispers all of these sweet nothings? She can't know that. This is a calculated, dangerous risk. Not unlike the one Olympias took when she rode on back into Macedonia when asked to come and look after Alexander's infant son. It could be a trap, but she deems the risk worth it. Taking this risk means Arsinoe doesn't have to leave her rightful, hard-earned place. She refuses to be cowed. Besides, she can stage-manage Saranus, can't she? At their wedding in 280 or 281 BCE, Saranus makes a big fuss of Arsinoe. He publicly puts a diadem on her head and hails her Regina, or Queen. Ancient writer Justin tells us that she's joyful because of this. She throws her new husband a festival to celebrate their nuptials, sending her two youngest sons to greet him at the edge of the city of Cassandria. We think that her eldest son, Ptolemy, has left by this point probably because he's pissed that his mom has married the creepy Thunderbolt King. She publicly sends her sons to his tent, probably because she's trying to force Saranus's hand, ensuring he publicly proclaims her sons as his heirs, as promised. And it's all going swimmingly. That is, until he pulls them into his tent and orders them killed. Justin, who is our only source for this, tells us the boys get away, screaming all the way back to their mother, who begs to be killed in their place. But it's no use. Her sons are ripped from her arms and killed right in front of her. She isn't even allowed to bury them. To add insult to injury, Saranus puts his mom, Eurydice, in charge of Cassandria. Luckily, he'll soon get stabbed by a bunch of people who dislike him. Bye, Saranus. Arsinoe is forced to leave her home and her two dead sons behind her, and she's probably pretty heartbroken. She's been tricked and betrayed by her half-brother and by her own ambition. She gambled and she lost it all. But this injured phoenix won't stay in her ashes forever. She'll land on the island of Samothrace, where we think she reunites with her oldest son, Ptolemy. It's here that she will build the largest round building in the Greek world as a thank you for harboring her in her time of need. Instead of going right back to Egypt, we think, she spends the next few years trying to help her son win back his birthright, though frankly, this part's all really hazy. Eventually, though, she has no choice but to go home to Egypt to seek refuge with her brother, Ptolemy II. Anyone who's ever moved back in with their parents after making it on their own will probably understand how she feels. She's already lived a big life as a queen, and now she's supposed to settle back and focus on her needlepoint? No thank you. Instead, she thinks she'll stage one of the ancient world's greatest comebacks.
The dates for this next part are all a bit blurry, but here's a rundown of what's happening. Arsinoe arrives in Alexandria. Her brother, now sole king of Egypt as Ptolemy II, exiles his wife, also named Arsinoe. And then he marries his full-blood sister, and she becomes his co-ruler. What? We have to remember that, at this point, a full-blood royal marriage is considered bizarre in the extreme. Sure, the Egyptians probably don't think much of it. Pharaohs did it for centuries, emulating the great brother-sister gods Isis and Osiris. But the Greeks? They think this is mega-scandalous and not at all okay. So why do they do it? The gossips like to say that Ptolemy is desperately in love with his eight years older sister, and perhaps that she manipulates that love for her gain. But if the Ptolemies are anything, it's extremely calculating. This has to be a well-thought-out move. Like the pharaohs of old, they know that sometimes it's better to turn your power inward and consolidate it rather than marry into other dynasties. I mean, Arsinoe already did that once, and look how that turned out. No, better and safer to close the gates and stick together, to align themselves with the Egyptian gods that people like so well. They even spin it as a kind of family values campaign, renaming themselves Philadelphus or sibling-loving, and emphasizing their duality as much as possible. It's a controversial move, to be sure, and we can't know how big a hand Arsinoe plays in making it happen. But there's no doubt in my mind that Arsinoe is ambitious, and this is to her massive benefit, letting her blaze a trail into leadership no woman in Egypt has for centuries. It sets the scene for Arsinoe to take a promise even unprecedented, step into the political sphere. So how much power does Arsinoe actually have, and how does she use it? Frustratingly, we can only really look to art and inscriptions to try to get a better picture. We don't know how much she appears in public and presides over public affairs, but we do know that she's very popular with the people. From what we can tell, she's also more involved with foreign policy and military action than any Ptolemy woman before her. For example, she travels with her brother-husband to a frontier town called Harunpolis to inspect some military defenses. We also have a decree from Greece from around 268, during a war that pitted several of the Greek city-states allied with Ptolemy II against each other. Though Arsinoe had died by then, the decree clearly states, King Ptolemy, following the policies of his ancestors and sister, demonstrates his concern for the, the fact that they mention her the specifically when they talk about policy shows what a prominent role she, or at the very least her image, has to play in political affairs. During that war, several ports are also named in Arsinoe's honor. Even more intriguingly, she appears in a poem by Posidipus, in which a young woman writes of a dream she has about Arsinoe, describing the sharp spear in your hand, the None hollow shield that she takes arm. an active role in actual warfare, but this image of her is there in the public consciousness, suggesting they see her as a person of power. Together, she and Brother Ptolemy influence and control the economy. They create royal monopolies, making sure that Egypt's finance comes right into the royal house. In what was once a barter economy, she helps introduce official coinage. All of these things help turn Egypt, and especially Alexandria, into the rich economic powerhouse that would dominate the ancient world. 
Arsinoe is nothing if not an innovator. Remember that Arsinoe and her brother pioneer not only the whole sibling marriage thing, but the idea of the Ptolemies as living demigods. They create links to the divine that make them different than their subjects, underscoring their right to rule. An official cult is created for the brother-sister duo called Theoi Adelphoi, or Sibling Gods. At Philae, at the Temple of Isis, she has herself installed as the resident goddess. In fact, almost every Egyptian temple ends up with symbols of Arsinoe in it, alongside the local god or goddess. Cults to Arsinoe crop up both in Greece and in Egypt, where they pray for and to her with dedicated priests and rituals. These cults turn Arsinoe into a living goddess, and in the ancient world, that grants a whole lot of cachet. And her worship survives long after she passes, until the 1st century BCE. Arsinoe paves the way for all the Ptolemaic women after her to essentially be born deified. Without her, Cleopatra wouldn't have grown up feeling quite so divine. Arsinoe uses both her money and image to influence foreign policy in all sorts of ways, but she's also really good at using it to build up the family's status at home. She gives money to religious projects, paying for shrines, patronizing various religious cults, and sponsoring elaborate festivals that let the common folk into the royal world. This makes the Ptolemies much more beloved. Nothing warms people's hearts quite like giving them places to pray and drink with abandon. This is a lesson Cleo will grow up learning and one she will also use to her advantage. Cleo will later take a lot of moves right out of Arsinoe's playbook. Be a generous patron, throw great parties, control the economy, and don't let anyone forget you're a goddess. Arsinoe is great as a patron of the arts. Her reign with her brother is a real literary high point in Alexandria, in large part because of how much time and money they pump into making it an artistic hub. Alexandrian poetry is full of Arsinoe. She features more in literature than any other Ptolemaic woman. In fact, when it comes to visibility, Arsinoe is everywhere. She appears in a whole lot of statues, vases, and etchings, and they have plenty to tell us about how she's seen and wants to be seen. In them, she often carries a dicara. That's a double version of the standard cornucopia, that Greek cone-shaped vessel meant to portray bounty and richness. This symbol, it seems, is created for Arsinoe and is such a potent signal of power and prosperity that Cleo Seven will use it in her own artwork many years later. She's also pictured with a crown never seen on an Egyptian queen before her. It looks like the red crown of Lower Egypt, but with some extra bits of flair added on. Two high plumes, as worn by Queen Nefertari, cow's horns, ram's horns, a symbol of Alexander the Great and of the god Amun-Ra, and a big old solar disk, a throwback that goes all the way back to Egypt's beginnings. The crown incorporates symbols old and new, hearkening back to some of Egypt's most powerful women. But she's the first queen in her line to have her own signature king look, and it becomes a potent signifier of female royal power. Leo's two, three, and seven will all rock this headgear. Her statues will remain a symbol of power and importance even after Rome conquers Egypt. The truly terrible Emperor Caligula actually imports statues of Arsinoe, so even Agrippina might have been awed by Arsinoe's greatness.
She's also one of the first Ptolemaic women to appear on coins, which are an important piece of propaganda in the ancient world. But more than that, her image will keep on appearing on Egyptian coinage all the way up to Cleopatra's day. Though we can't be sure why she remains so visible, she clearly is a known and iconic figure. Not quite the mother of the dynasty, but an important pioneer nonetheless, one that later Ptolemaic women will all look up to. And then there's her throne name. Very few women to this point have gotten one, unless they ruled like Hatshepsut, but Arsinoe does. Her titles include Lady of Loveliness, Sweet in Love, Beautiful of Appearance, Who Fills the Palace with Her Beauty, Queen of the Two Lands, and, most impressively, King of Upper and Lower Egypt. So, really, there's little reason to doubt that she was considered a co-ruler in name. She isn't content to sit in the shadows. She's going to be a king in her own right. Against all odds, she carves out a trail for royal Ptolemaic women to claim power and rock it both within Egypt's borders and outside of them. It's a trail that every one of her female ancestors will eagerly follow. We don't know for sure when Arsinoe dies, but we think she's around the age of 50. Her brother-husband will elevate many mistresses after her passing, but never marries again. Here's another mystery for you. Not long after she dies, Ptolemy II appoints a joint ruler named Ptolemy, the son. The wording suggests that it isn't Ptolemy III, one of his sons with Arsinoe I, that first wife, but someone who isn't his biologically. The most obvious candidate is Arsinoe's son, Ptolemy. He eventually falls out with his uncle, but he still goes on to rule a minor kingship in Telmesis. We can hope that, before she passed into the great beyond, Arsinoe knew her son would finally rule a kingdom, just as she'd always wanted. And when Arsinoe goes out, she's in her rightful place. Though uber-famous in her lifetime and for centuries afterward, today very few people know Arsinoe. Although apparently there's a butterfly in my adopted country of Australia called the Vindula Arsinoe, which is a very fetching shade of orange. But there's no doubt that this trailblazing pharaoh's daughter, who went on to rule herself, was a mighty force to be reckoned with. She brought knowledge, prosperity, and money into Egypt. She was part of bringing together the Greek and Egyptian world. More than anything else, she helped carve out a place for Ptolemaic women, not as side pieces or silent queens, but as rulers. Women who could pick up the crook and flail and write their own powerful destinies. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you liked this bonus and the Explorers in general, you'll find hours of exclusive bonus content over on my Patreon page. For as little as $1 a month, you'll get access to episodes about women who rode the doomed Titanic and lady spies during the Civil War. And you'll find sneak peeks and exclusive interviews with authors like Pamela Toller, who wrote the very excellent book Women Warriors. To check it out, just go to patreon.com and look up the Explorers. You'll find the transcript and images from this bonus on my website, theexplorespodcast.com. And you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explores Podcast and Twitter at The Explores Pod. Much love to Mr. Explores for my theme music and logo and for his help producing this episode. <laughs>